Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, Nolan Arenado actually got traded. I can't believe it. Well, I can, actually, because it's been a few days, but uh, let's talk about it. We'll get yes, into definitely. It. <laughs> We've got a real busy show this week. A lot happened besides the Nolan Arenado trade, and that Arenado trade is going to take a, take a lot of our time here, so let's just jump into it. Um, we've previously discussed multiple times on this podcast, on the site, everywhere that <laughs> everywhere that we talk baseball, we've talked about how unlikely we thought it was that Nolan Arenado would get traded simply because of how much his value had tanked and the current financial environment in baseball, or it's so difficult for teams to take on mega contracts like that. But what do you know? The Rockies were determined enough. They played around with his contract, added in enough stipulations, and took a small enough return that they made it happen. Yeah. So I wrote an article back in late September, as you just referencing Nolan Arenado's trade value has tanked. And and thank you for supporting me on that because I felt like at the time like I was going out on a limb, say, hey, this is he's underwater and significantly so. Um, but I also said that because of that, it sort of felt like it was it would be selling low on him if they traded him. It was like he's stuck there. He's not going to take. He's not going to opt out. He's not going to get more money than that, especially in this environment. And they're not going to get anything for him. So in addition to sort of explaining why we thought his value was strongly negative, you know, I just thought I, I said um, at one point I said, well, you know, the option is they could they could sell low on him and the Rockies would have to kick in $50 million and get a paltry return or they could do nothing and actually thought they would do nothing. But look, yeah. they did the other thing. So... They did the other thing. Exactly. <laughs> uh, before, before we get too deep into here, let's, oh, let me just run through the actual trade itself. So we yeah. had Arenado who we have at negative 43 or who we had, excuse me, a negative 43.7 million in trade value. Uh, more on that in a minute. Um, and then 50 million in cash from the Rockies and we'll also get to that there's there's just so much to unpack of this trade I should probably preface it by saying this is one of the more complicated trades we've ever seen I think yeah. in Major League Baseball with all the money and the deferrals and opt-outs and everything so there's going to be a lot to break down here but as it stands negative 43.7 million trade value for Arenado Rockies are chipping in 50 million in cash and in exchange they're getting five players uh, one major leaguer, left-handed pitcher Austin Gomber, who we had at 4-9. He's kind of a swingman type. And then four prospects, none of them super notable. There's Elahuris Montero, who's a third baseman at 4.1. Jake Somers, who's a right-handed pitcher at 0.1. Tony Losey, a right-handed pitcher at 1.1. And Mateo Hill, a shortstop at 2.9. So none of this is really... None of this is really substantial return here, but... We actually have this as a slight overpay um, on the Cardinals' end. The, the Rockies' end of this deal totals up to 13.1. Cardinals' totals up to 6.3, um, which is <laughs> a bit funny considering the way that this has been portrayed in the media as, yeah. oh my goodness, they just got pennies over here for Nolan, which they did. They did just get pennies for Arenado, yeah. and they paid to get his contract off. But given all the other parameters of this deal, he, they did get a little more than we might've expected. Um, yeah. Just going to jump into the contract and everything real quick. A couple of the stipulations here. Uh, so an opt out was added after the 2022 season. He already had one after the 2021 season. Now he gets a second one and we've 
part of our firm belief here in his negative trade value and how difficult it would be to move him was that we thought, okay, after his rough 2020 with the current financial state of the market and with kind of what his resume would be heading into free agency after 2021, there's no way he's opting out. And so now he gets a second opt out, but we still don't really think he does. Um, ben Clemens of Fangraphs wrote an excellent piece. Yeah. Uh, he, he only seems to write excellent pieces, but he wrote a great one about kind of the value of that opt-out yeah. and kind of the likelihood that he would opt out. And I think he settled around something about something around 20% combined that he would opt out in one of the two years yeah. um, using straight up projections. <laughs> and if you toss his 2020 out the window, which we've discussed before how we kind of can't do, no. but if you do, if you toss his 2020 out the window entirely, then it becomes about 50-50. Uh, but either way, we're looking at a vast, well, <laughs> I wouldn't say either way, but we have to use the 2020 values, the 2020 data, because that's what teams are using very clearly. Otherwise, you would have seen even more going back to the Rockies in this deal. But what that means is one in five chance maybe that he opts out at some point. So that's almost, that second opt-out is almost negligible here yeah. as in terms of reassessing his value. On top of that, the contract was restructured a little bit, where I believe it's 15 million of his 2021 salary is is remaining in 2021, and that'll all be paid by the Rockies. The remaining 20 million will be deferred, also paid by the Rockies. Plus, he gets an extra year tacked on at the end of the deal. So, so many moving parts. John, I feel like you're you're itching to say something. Jump in, so go for it. Okay, so <clears throat> um, where to begin? Um, <laughs> it's it's very complicated. So first of all, um, pat ourselves on the back because we were right. So take c- credit words too. Thank you, thank you everybody. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> but you know, you mentioned earlier that it was an overpay, slight overpay, by the Cardinals, and I want to explain that because the popular take in the media is, oh my God, they got nothing for him, and they gave gave a fifty million dollars. I and mean, I just watched a comic video that's floating around Twitter that makes fun of the whole you know negotiation. Everybody's take is, oh, this is a horrible deal for the Rockies. Um, now we're the impartial souls who are saying, now hang on a second, wait a minute. And so this is a good opportunity to remind everybody, this is not trades are not baseball transactions; they are business transactions. You are trading a contract a contract that stipulates this player is giving you X amount of services for X amount of money. That's what happened here. So the contract, you know, was he is still a, he, at the time of the trade, he was still at $199 million. He's not worth that, which is why they had to kick in the extra money. And they kicked in a little bit more extra to get some, to get the paltry return, just like we said would happen. Okay. So, but that's a business transaction, obviously from a baseball pure baseball field value point of view that's the way everybody else looks at it like oh my god this big superstar gold glove winner of time all-star yada yada for nothing and they gave away money as well of course that's ridiculous because you're only looking at the baseball value totally neglecting the money the big contract but you can't do that because it is a business transaction so that's point number one and that's that's holds true for every trade we have i was just corresponding with one of our users on email today saying, hey, how come it's so easy to trade like a guy with a, an elite player on a big contract for like a, a prospect? Like, because you have to look at it as a business transaction. You have to think about all the money. Oh, and then it made sense to him. So, <clears throat> um, so you're inheriting all of that money. And with that, the Cardinals are inheriting a guy who's now in his 30s, who's probably, 
entering his decline years. His best years are behind him. So it's not like you've got Nolan Arenado forever. Nolan Arenado frozen in time as this wonderful yes. person that's always going to be this wonderful player. No, you're getting him as he declines year by year as you overpay him. He's also got injury risk based on his shoulder problem that ruined his whole 2020 season, which may come back to haunt them again. He's also got contract rich risk, which is another thing people don't talk about much, which is basically after this year, they have to pay him $35 million a year for several years, which ties up their money, which is an opportunity cost that they can't use to spread around to other players. So if he does turn south even more, you're stuck with him. It becomes an albatross. So you've got that risk as well. They're inheriting all of that. So, and the $50 million helps, which is why they sort of evened it out. And then they gave a few prospects away, but, but that's the part of it. I wish somebody would actually say, and I guess it's up to us to say it. That's the deal. <laughs> yes. There is no question that all 30 major league baseball teams want prime Nolan Arenado on their team right yeah. now that nobody on the planet, especially not us. We're not arguing that you could also say, I think 30 out of 30 Major League Baseball teams, maybe a little lower, depending on what their situation is at third base, but maybe 30 out of 30 would want Nolan Arenado, age 30 to 36, on their team yeah. still. Even though those are his decline years, he's declining from being a superstar. Yeah. There's still going to be plenty of value there. However, if he were designated for assignment... We, we, it's a good comparison here, actually, taking a guy like Brad Hand that was designated for assignment earlier in the offseason. Granted... Uh, the, the financials were a lot less certain back then. We've talked about that and why he ended up ultimately getting a larger contract value um, than the, the dollar amount that nobody claimed. But nobody claimed Brad Hand on one year and 10 million, and not because Brad Hand is bad, but because he, at the time, wasn't necessarily worth 10 yeah. million to yeah. them. In the same way, if Nolan Arenado was designated for assignment the day before this trade, the Cardinals wouldn't have claimed yeah. him. Nobody would have... Well, they might have claimed him and tried to work out a trade with the Rockies, but they wouldn't have claimed him and just taken his entire salary they don't nobody wants nolan arenado at six years and 200 yeah, million right, right now <clears throat> so that's the huge consideration that you just cannot forget granted i think the cardinals you mentioned contract risk there i think it's a little bit lesser for them than it might have been for another one of these big teams who uh, might have wanted to try and acquire him you look at a team like the braves that also looked like a decent fit there given their third base situation um, they obviously have ronald acuna and ozzy albies locked up very cheap long term but they're going to be reaching an impasse in the near future with Freddie Freeman and Dansby Swanson's headed for free agency soon. And so they've got a couple other pieces there that they're going to need to invest some money in soon. Whereas the Cardinals, and this is, this is kind of an effect of the Cardinals not being that great of a baseball team. <laughs> they don't have a lot of that star talent that's going to start getting expensive soon. They have Paul Goldschmidt, who's on a sizable extension um, that they signed him to after acquiring him. Um, and that's pretty much it, really. They got Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina, who are going to retire eventually. They got Matt Carpenter and Dexter Fowler. Those albatross contracts are off the books after this year. They got Paul DeYoung, who's locked up cheap for a long time. Then they got a bunch of guys on rookie deals who aren't necessarily star performers that are going to get big bucks right away. The Dylan Carlsons, Harrison Bader, yeah. um, Tommy Edmond, these guys, Tommy yeah. er, uh, Tyler O'Neill. So they don't really have a ton of future payroll commitments outside of that Goldschmidt yeah. deal and maybe Jack Flaherty arbitration in the future. Um, yeah. So they, maybe they have a little more flexibility to add an Arnado. Yeah. Um, I just, I just want to talk super quick about the return here. Um, and this is 90% of my knowledge here comes from Eric Longenhagen at Fangraphs. I'm just kind of regurgitating what he wrote in his write-up on the piece. I'll go ahead and link to that in the show notes as well. 
Um, there's, they got some upside in this deal in Montero and, and uh, Mateo Hill, to be specific. Both of those guys are physical, physically very strong, very toolsy, um, both with pretty awful plate discipline. <laughs> and that's their main flaw. If not for their plate discipline, they'd both be much higher ranked prospects, probably wouldn't have been available in this deal. And then Gomber, uh, Longenhagen has is more of a swingman type, but in Colorado, given their current rotation, he's going to probably step in the rotation right away. And then Losi and Summers. Summers is more of a relief type. Losi could start, but also back-end type projection there. So we're not talking... I mean, Mateo Hill is the youngest of the group. You can look at him and maybe see a guy who... Uh, like we've been talking about the last few weeks here, everyone's looking for the next big thing. Everyone's looking for the next... We talked about it with Hudson Head, how he's not a top 50 prospect right now, but if they think he might be in a couple years, they're going to go get him right now while yeah. they still can. Uh, Mateo Hill is the only one in this deal who even kind of profiles like that. And even then, it's going to be a long road for him to get there. Um, but other than that, there's not a ton yeah, of upside. and even long on hit that look. These are all just like 40s, maybe 40 plus. You know, yes. I can't I can't spin it any other way. <laughs> um, but I want to get back to um, two points. Um, getting back to your point about Atlanta, you know, just thinking outside the box and like, what if Atlanta? Atlanta doesn't do that. You know, they 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 do mm-hmm. one year contracts for Azuna or Donaldson when they have a sort of a, a reason to, uh, but they don't do you know and they'll and they'll lock up an Acuna or an Albies very young in their career for very cheap deals because they know they have all that surplus, but they don't typically overpay on big long contracts like this. So even though they could have used a third baseman, you know, um, you know, it just doesn't fit their style. But I want to go back to another point. So. Everybody's mocking the the Rockies, right? Because oh my God, you made such a stupid deal. Okay, the deal that they made here was not stupid, as we said. It's actually slight overpay. Mm-hmm. That's not the stupid part. The stupid part was extending him to such a high AAV in the first place. That's you know thirty five million a year. That's Mike. That's pretty close to Mike Trout territory. Arenado is. Yeah, I'll even. <laughs> I'll even add, I'll counter there that the stupid point isn't necessarily locking him up to that deal. It's locking him up to that deal without a plan. For yes, how to and I was going to get to that point as well. But part yes. of that is hand <laughs> in hand because they, you splurge yeah. on one player. Granted, he's the face of your franchise, but it 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 made it such that they couldn't build around him because they didn't have any money to do so. You want to spread your bets a little bit. So, you know, why they locked him mm-hmm. up to such an enormous contract in the beginning, I don't know. But that was the mistake. So you could argue, I think it's debatable whether trading him now was selling low, you know, the right time to trade him. Now. Obviously, they made another mistake with, mm-hmm. you know, alienating him and getting into a public feud with the GM was not a good idea um, on the GM's part as well. So you could say, okay, that's mistake number two, and that kind of backed him into the corner. They had a little less leverage, and they had to trade him just to kind of clear the air. So, but but the from a business standpoint, the mistake was giving them that big contract, which they then had to get out of which is what the whole point of this was. Yeah, I think there's a very real case to be made that they should have waited another year mm-hmm. and then like give it one last ride with both Arenado and Story, see if Arenado rebounds and then maybe he opts out or maybe if he doesn't rebound, he still opts out because he <clears throat> doesn't, <laughs> just because he hates it there with the yeah. ownership and everything so much and he sees the trajectory that his team is on. Um, and at that point, if he does opt out, give him a qualifying offer. You get that back for them, which it, which is less than this return here, but it's also not going to cost you fifty million dollars. Um, that the, the fifty million that they're sending to the Cardinals in this deal. Um, well, it yes. does. 
<laughs> yeah, you're right. I see. I hear what you're saying yeah, already. Yeah, they would yeah. still have to pay the 35 yes. million in 2021. Yes. Um, so it, it evens out a little bit there. Um, but they do get a draft pick return then if they were to qualifying offer him. Um, I think the one factor there that really defeats that whole argument of, oh, just hang on to him and see what happens. And then worst case, you know, you just have to make a similar trade next offseason. I think the one argument that beats that is just how crowded the infield market's going to be. Yeah. Next offseason, that's kind of the big superstar class of shortstops and even a third baseman like Chris Bryant there. Yeah. Um, so any of these teams that are interested in adding a star like this on the left side of their infield, why would they look to Arenado with a contract who they already perceive as underwater, plus they'll have to give up some sort of an asset to get him when they can just bid on a Javier Baez or Corey Seager or Francisco Lindor if he makes it to free agency, Carlos Correa, Chris Bryant, so many names there. And then there's a couple one-year guys from this offseason, Marcus Semien and uh, Andrelton yeah. Simmons, who are going to be back out on the market. So, yeah. And that calculus will also apply to Arenado's decision to opt out. Does he really want to join a market with that much competition? So a lot of factors here, um, and I, so I don't know if I completely buy the argument of wait another year. I think it's a much stronger argument to say they should have done it sooner well, <laughs> or not, not extended him in the first place, but there is yeah. an argument to be made. No, I and I was thinking, I, I've said that in the past as well, like, you know, you're basically, if you transact now, if you realize the value now, you're down... 43.7 right but if mm -hmm. you buy that he's going to rebound from his injury rebound in, from his performance then and you want i was out you're down to zero so that's a difference of 43 million dollars right so mm -hmm. and then you get a draft pick back as well now you would have had to pay him the 35 while he was playing of course um but but i've argued that in the past what leads me to what makes me a little bit suspicious though is the re one of the reasons why they decided to trade him now in addition to the relationship going south is maybe they know something maybe he is damaged goods maybe they don't have confidence that he's mm -hmm. going to have a bounce back here and um and we'll see i mean this has happened many times before when the indians traded cory kluber he, you know he was damaged goods too as we saw you know so and there's many other examples of this so i i can't say for sure i'm totally speculating here but i have based on the article i wrote based on the numbers i saw and the point i made was like look he injured his shoulder diving to his left wouldn't look like a routine dive and you know, that should be, you know, a normal play for him, but it totally ruined his season. So A, is that shoulder healed? And B, what if he does it again and it ruins another season? So I, you, there's a lot of, there's enough doubt in my mind there that I'm not sure he would bounce back and maybe there was just enough doubt in their mind as well. Yeah, yeah. I think two more points I want to make here and then I'm <laughs> I'm at least yeah. done. Um, uh, one is that there have been talks that the Rockies now want to pivot and extend Trevor's story, which is like kind of, funny <laughs> it's kind yeah. of objectively funny um but i mean if that is their plan if they did decide okay we know we flubbed this up but we want to try again then maybe it is important for them to get that arenado money off the books first rather than trying to negotiate with both of them in free agent or trying to negotiate with story as a free agent after arenado has already walked or if he's still on the team then you're trying to trade arenado so you can sign story i could see that creating a whole mess there so um i kind of understand that and the other point I wanted to make um, was a response kind of to some of the some of the things we've already seen from a lot of folks about um, Arenado's performance outside of Coors, which I kind of one for the first for the first point, it's not dreadful, even if we were still in this mode of, OK, we're, we only evaluate Rockies players based on their performance outside of Coors, even if that <laughs> was it. He's not he hasn't been bad outside of Coors. He's been worse than he normally performs worse than he is at home for sure um but he hasn't been bad 
And then two, plenty of research has been done into the Coors hangover effect where hitters suffer more on the, Colorado Rockies hitters suffer more on the road because they're used to the way that the ball moves in the thin air at Coors. Mm-hmm. And so with guys like DJ LeMayhew, Matt Holliday before him, Corey Dickerson to an extent where we've seen them leave Colorado and continue to be productive hitters and in some cases even get better, I think we just have to dispel this myth of every Rocky is going to suck once they leave Coors Field. There's there's going to be some cases where guys do just, maybe they get too used to hitting at that level or whatever, and they just can't get it back in new homes. But a guy like Arenado, who's already established that he's a star player, I don't have any concerns. Maybe there's a month or two of growing pains or something, but I don't have any legitimate concerns here about his ability to hit outside of Coors. <clears throat> no, I think that's fair. Um, you know, um, every player hits worse on the road, right? That's kind of a known mm-hmm. known research fact. So um, you could argue, I mean, you, so it's not as simple as just saying, oh, he's, you know, 120-something WRC at home, and he's 109 in the road. You know, that's probably going to even out, you know, because there's always mm-hmm. the home effect, the generic home effect, if you will. So, you know, he'll benefit from that in St. Louis as well, uh, assuming he's healthy. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think that's. Oh, do you have? Any I, I just want one last point to close, which is, <laughs> you know, again, look at it from a business point of view, not a baseball point of view. Everyone, I shouldn't assume everyone, but oh, the the grand consensus was, oh, they're trading Arenado, he's going to bring back a haul. No, you got to look at it from a, the contract point of view. Um, and so, just my last word of advice to all of our listeners and i mean I know you all know this but there are still apparently many people who don't and don't look at the money but don't follow the money that'll tell you the story yeah and that applies to not only guys like arenado who we have their value as underwater but even guys who we have as positive value i i, I saw some discussions on twitter today um with a prominent youtuber who i won't name kind of about oh the site must be crazy here they've got Jacob deGrom only worth 60 million and that and somebody just sent me a trade proposal saying oh the Yankees could get him for Davey Garcia and Jason Dominguez well no they probably couldn't those teams would never agree to that trade but what we're saying is that he has 60 surplus value on top of the 60 million or so that he's already earning exactly and if you look at it from this context that we often mention of what if Jacob deGrom was a free agent today over the next four years 120 million or so in value that's 30 million a year that's about the going rate for an ace starting pitcher so especially one that's in his later years that like like the grom exactly so always consider the money as a huge piece in in the puzzle um surprising that it's surprising that people don't do that as often okay Um, end of sermon so there's (laughs) yes so there's our nolan arenado discussion i'll link to john's article as well as the ben clemens article and the eric longenhagen prospect breakdown i'll link to all that in the show notes if you have any questions about any of that feel free to shoot us a message um, on twitter or leave a comment on the article or whatever whatever you want to do to contact us now, we got plenty of other trades and signings to get to, so let's get started on these. Um, let's start with another interesting money deal here. The Angels picking up Alex Cobb from the, uh, excuse me, not the Astros, from the Orioles. So we had Alex Cobb, his contract very obviously underwater, negative 11.6, um, and the Angels will only be taking on 5 million of his 15 million salary, and there will be some deferrals there, so it's even a little bit less than 5 million. Um, And in exchange to the Baltimore Orioles, they sent back second base prospect Jamai Jones, 4.6 million in trade value. So this one, 
if we're just using the base values here of 11.6 or negative 11.6 for Cobb, 10 million cash, and uh, excuse me, correction, sorry, 4.9 for Jemai Jones. Um, if we're just using those base trade values, then it's accepted by our model as a major overpay by Los Angeles. I think the deferral plays a little bit of a role there. I think there's a possibility we're a little high on Jemai Jones, but either way, it's within the realm of possibility. It's another one of these money moves, and sometimes, you know, some I, th I think we'll have a wider variance on these types of moves just because the financials can be a little bit tricky sometimes, but it's still accepted by the model, so well within reason. Yeah, and and prospects of as we've said before have higher variance, um, so mm -hmm. you know it's quite possible that um, you know they know something about Jones that we don't that we haven't seen in any of the prospect reports that we've sent. And granted, they they have not all been updated yet, so we'll see if it gets downgraded and all. But so that's possibly one factor. But you also have to look at it. What are the options um, that the Angels had versus other sort of Pitchers. They could get Alex Cobb for basically less than five million in terms of salary, mm -hmm. but they have to give up something. Um, or they could sign a Jake Odorizzi or a, you know Taiwan Walker. And they, for some reason, they thought Cobb at, in this package was better than those options. Maybe there's too much competition for those guys. We haven't seen that yet. But and maybe they're running out of money, so they thought, okay, let's split the difference. We'll only have to pay five for this guy with a prospect maybe that we don't care so much about. So that's fine. So I think that's all that happened here. There was just like the the, you know, the one that fit their budget, basically. And to, to Cop's credit, he did sort of rebound a little bit towards the end of last year. You know, he's been injury prone for the last couple of years and very mediocre. We know that. But he did get on a little bit of a productive streak there. And so maybe they saw something like. Yeah, I think in most cases here, if you're trading for Cobb like this, you're hoping for some league average innings, maybe a little bit better. And you're hoping that he eats a handful of them that yeah. he gives you some some consistency in the back end of the rotation and that's really what they needed given the current structure of their rotation with um, some upside but uncertainty at the front in Bundy, Haney, and Otani you really don't know Bundy's had one good year Haney's been kind of back and forth his whole career and then Otani what are you going to get out of him who knows um, so adding reliable innings I think there is still potentially room I don't know exactly their financials or what their salary ceiling is going to be um, but I think there is still room for another arm if they decide to make that move. But at well, least through this deal, they add some certainty. Yeah, and and Joe Madden, I believe, managed Alex Cobb back when he was in Tampa, mm -hmm. so there's that connection as well. So then maybe it gets me out of, that, out of that. Although who knows what's going on with their pitching coach? By the time this happens, that may be resolved. So I don't know. Don't even want to comment on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Best left alone. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty. Now let's head into a more recent trade. Uh, this one actually just broke um, the night that we are recording this. Uh, this was the Giants and the Twins. The Giants are acquiring outfielder Lamont Wade, who we had at 1.2 million, in exchange for right-handed pitcher Sean Anderson, who we had at 3.7. So this one, again, we had this as a minor overpay by the Giants, um, but you'll still accept it, and I think you can explain a little bit better why that's not necessarily the case. Um, yeah, um, so we've been updating some numbers lately, and, um, you know, we're not going to change this one on the site, um, because it is what it is, and we don't like to do that, but behind the scenes, you know, if we updated some of the numbers that we just got recently, this would have been a little bit closer. Um, it would have been, uh, Wade would be at 1.6, and Anderson would be at 2.7, but that's 
I, I don't want to sound like we're cheating because we're not. We're just trying to <laughs> look at it from a model point of view. But we'll, we'll leave it as it is, as is on the on the site. It, it doesn't really matter because they're all it's already well within range. Anderson yeah. has a lot of. Um, he started out as a starter. They've been using him more as a reliever. He's more of a swing man. So there's a lot of relief risk there, which is why he, you know, he's he's gone down a little bit. Wade just hasn't broken through yet, although he does have good, um, you know. Um, OPB sort of walkability. Maybe that's a key that I know Farhan Zadie always sort of likes to look for, so maybe you can see something he can work with there. That's all I got to say about that one. Yeah, today the Giants officially, and we'll talk about this very briefly later, but they officially signed Tommy LaStella. Um, they had to make room on their 40-man, so they ended up cutting uh, Luis Alexander Basabe, who was a prospect they had claimed on waivers and they really liked, but he was out of options. And so immediately their focus began, be, uh, became we want an optionable like fifth outfield type. Yeah. And so Wade checked all the boxes for him. He has options. He has a little bit of upside, as you mentioned with the OBP skills. Um, and maybe he's the type that they can develop some power with and get him into a solid MLB regular, but uh, either way, solid depth for them. And then the twins have lost a lot of pitching this, this uh, off season. They had a lot of bullpen free agents. Um, they've replaced a couple of them, but again, an optionable swingman arm here in Anderson doesn't hurt. Fair enough. Okay. <clears throat> Another minor trade here. Uh, Mets picked up Jordan y- Yamamoto from the Marlins. Yamamoto, best known for his role in the Christian Yelich trade from the Brewers. Um, we had him at 0.1 million in trade value. So he goes to the Mets for infield Feder- infielder Federico Polanco, who was not in our system at the time. Has he been added since? Yeah, he's a non-prospect, okay. 0.2. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, so... Real minor move here. Mets just picking up some rotation depth here. Um, in just a second, we'll get we'll get to a little bit more of their rotation discussion as of late, as of today especially. <laughs> um, but Yamamoto, I've always kind of liked him just for no real reason. Uh, hasn't really put much of anything together at the big league level. So. Yeah, you gotta wonder about that Yelich trade though. Ooh, that's a <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing. They... Marlon's got nothing. <laughs> There's a lot riding on jo- on Isan Diaz and Lewis Brinson and Monte Harrison. And... Brinson's yeah. Brinson's a total bust. I've written him off. I I think the mm-hmm. league has as well. I mean, all the projections. And Diaz good. is like a year away from that category. And Harrison's been slipping as well. So mm-hmm. you know, for a guy who's Yelich's trade value was well over a hundred at the time. You know, if you look at the values now, it's like you're looking at somewhere in the 20s. So it's, a re- it's not good. <laughs> not great. And I think that's another one that was consensus not too great at the time because all 29 other teams saw Yelich as a breakout the second he left Miami. And only the Miami Marlins treated him kind of <laughs> as the player he still was, as the low power, you know, gets on base a little bit, but like not too much else to him type guy. And so they traded him for that kind of a package. And. Yikes. Yeah, I mean, the biggest <laughs> problem was there. Louis, Louis Brinson was like a top 10 yeah. prospect at the time, and his stock fell dramatically. He just, he just never put it together. And that happens sometimes when you your lead piece, you know, busts, then mm-hmm. it kills everything. It, similar the Josh Donaldson trade, you know, with Barreto busting pretty much is a similar case. And the other guys mm-hmm. didn't pan out either. So um, it happens sometimes. Yep. That's baseball for you. <laughs> All right. Uh, the Reds picked up shortstop Kyle Holder from the Phillies. Um, Holder was a Rule Five pickup. We had his value at we have his value at 1.3 million. Um, he had some some minor prospect value there. Really good glove, no pop whatsoever. 
Um, right now, <laughs> excuse my pun, but he's a little bit of a placeholder yeah. for the Reds yeah. <laughs> because they do not have a shortstop. Yeah. And according to reports at the time of the trade, they'll consider if they don't if they don't get a better option, they'll consider using him at the position um, just to have the sure glove there. But for Philly, they no longer had room for him after they brought back Didi Gregorius. Yeah, and they just got cash back, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So. Alrighty, and then last one of these minor little trades here. Uh, the Athletics picked up left-hander Cole Irvin, also from the Phillies in exchange for cash. Uh, that was another 40-man move by the Phillies, who also signed Matt Moore from Korea. Uh, Korea? Japan? Yeah. Uh, from overseas. Yeah. <laughs> and needed to make a 40-man spot for him. Irvin, not much of anything. We have him at, uh, I believe, zero, yeah, 0. 0.1 million mm-hmm. in trade value. He's really just a depth arm. Yep. Nothing much else to it. Yep. And the return was cash or, I think, PTB. Yeah. 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 Okay, moving on into free agents. Um, Let's start with just a minute here on Trevor Bauer. He hasn't signed yet at the time of recording. There was a bit of a scare earlier today, a a Nightingale (laughs) moment, where (laughs) Bob Nightingale reported that uh, Bauer to the Mets was done, and about 30 seconds later, Mark Feinzand and Robert Murray came in and said, "Mm, not yet. (laughs) So... And Rachel um, Luba said, oh, I, I, should I, do I need to yes. retweet this? That there's still two teams involved? <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> yeah, do, do I need to remind you guys? Um, yeah, I'm trying to stay as distant from that saga as I can. But otherwise, other than to note, I believe it was uh, John Morosi who reported that the negotiations with the Mets are somewhere in the three years, 90 million to 100 million type range. And that's that's right in line with what our model yeah. says. So. We'll see where the where the years and dollars actually end up on there. It feels like it's going to be done within the next 24 hours or so. Maybe by the time this podcast is uploaded. Um, yeah. But that's kind of our that's that's our green light if those are the terms of the deal. Of yes, that's that's about. Yeah, and far. and the initial sort of, you know, oh we're going for Garrett Cole money. Oh we're going to try to break the record. Oh we're going for it. No, that's all. That was all just negotiation, right? We knew it was going to fall down eventually, and here we are in February. And now everybody's getting real, and now it's finally time to do the thing at the real number. So that's what's yeah. going to work out. Yeah. I'm. There's a small part of me that's surprised this didn't drag out longer, <laughs> but I think I think if it was a normal off season and more teams had money, I think he would have delayed it even longer until one of them bit and gave him that extra dollar or whatever it was. But um, given given the circumstances, it seems like there's really only two teams involved, the Mets and the Dodgers. And so, and according to reports, the Dodgers want to go short, short-term with him the same way that they offered to Bryce Harper. <clears throat> yeah. um, and if, if that's, I mean... <laughs> Bauer has in the past said that he wanted to go year to year. He really walked that back after the season that he had in 2021 um, and said, we'll be considering contracts of all sizes and types. (laughs) Um, But it seems like he's going to get a little bit more of a traditional contract. Maybe not, maybe not quite what you would expect um, in terms of like, usually aces like this will get like a five or six year deal as their one big free agent contract. And it seems like both the Mets and Bauer might have some interest in keeping it to three years or so. Uh, with some opt-outs, but it's still going to be, it's not going to be a one-year deal, it doesn't sound like. No, and, you know, there's a lot of doubt in the industry, too, whether he's actually an ace, because he's had a bit of an up-and-down career, he's obviously got an mm. outspoken personality, and, you know, there's questions about that, so, like, he's not, like, as solid as a, an ace-ace, like Garrett Cole was, you know, you're getting an ace there, 
he's not quite that, you know, so I think it's been, you know, interesting to see where he's going to land. I'm not surprised that it's, it's, it's finally happening now because we're a little over a week away from spring training and people got to move. People got to book their housing, you know, it's time. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Especially when it's, if it's between the Mets and the Dodgers, that's, I'm going to Arizona or I'm going to Florida. Right. I, right. I need to know <laughs> one of these days. Yeah. Okay. So on to the actual signings that we can confirm as of now. Um, Twins finally re-signed Nelson Cruz. That's another one that was just, it seemed like it was waiting to happen, just dangling on the thread for the last four months or so. And it was really hinging on whether the National League would have the DH. And in recent conversations between some of the negotiations between the league and the union, we're not going to get into that. That's not our territory. (laughs) But um, it's seeming less and less likely that the National League will have the DH in 2021. Uh, pretty. I I guess it's pretty likely it comes back in 2022 when they renegotiate the CBA. Yeah. Um, but at least for this year, doesn't seem like there will be one. And so the Twins were the natural spot for Nelson Cruz to return to. That's a mutual, mm-hmm. uh, lots of mutual interest there, mutual love mm-hmm. there. And so he heads back there for a straight $13 million deal, no team option. Yeah. So what's interesting about this from a modeling perspective is you don't see a whole lot of 40-year-old players, right? And so our sort of aging curve model tends to end like in the late 30s because, you know, there's fewer and fewer data points. Same with the injury risk model, fewer and fewer data points. So like, oh, my God, what are we going to do with this? Because like logically it's going to it's gonna go down to zero eventually because there's no players over 40. So like he's getting $13 million at age 40. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, David Ortiz, you can make the case that that was the, so like he's an exception to the rule and we had to bend a little bit just because we didn't have a precedent, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah. but you know, you can look back at it last year and say, yeah, he can still do it. So it's a one-off case. <laughs> yeah. My roommate's a twins fan and I was talking to him about <clears throat> this and he, he called Nelson Cruz, the Tom Brady of baseball. Yeah. It just seems like he's ageless. He's going to keep hitting 40 homers a year until he dies. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, you could argue that, you know, he's just a DH, so there's less injury risk there. You could see them lasting longer. That happened with Ortiz as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, but it was our, pretty yeah, remarkable I by, I, I believe if I'm not making this up, I believe I saw this the other day by fan last season, he was a, two win player as a dh in 60 games that's yeah. like yeah. pretty remarkable there um yeah he truly is one of a kind in terms of baseball right now so it makes sense that he doesn't fit into our our, our cookie cutter model here yeah he was a two win player flat by fan graphs 16 homers in 53 games that's a little ridiculous um yeah yeah he's one of a kind he broke the model a little bit but that's to be expected all right, a couple more outfield moves here. Cleveland signed Eddie Rosario. They actually have a outfielder now. They have one outfielder. <laughs> Good uh, for them. He's going to have to cover a lot of ground if he's really just out there on his own, but they have one outfielder. Uh, it's a one-year, $8 million deal. He was non-tendered by the Twins um, at the arbitration deadline. And he really just had a rough season for them in 2020. He was kind of on the down downslope the last couple of years where he's been kind of an old school offensive contributor, not really an OBP guy, a lot of home run RBI, like decent batting average. One of those types where he gets paid plenty in arbitration, but he's not worth a ton to the team itself. And so, especially as his glove declined a little bit, um, twins moved on from him. I believe. Yeah. Here it says, According to MLB trade rumors, his arbitration projection was between 8.6 and 12.9 million. 
and kind of what we saw on arbitration day was that most of the values fell like right at about the midpoint in there so we can say he would have gotten some something like 10 million maybe yeah um and he's not necessarily worth that but eight million maybe um, eight, well, eight million is fair according yeah. to our model yeah yeah <clears throat> yeah so. <laughs> nothing right super on. exciting yep. here but yep. cleveland has an yep. outfielder <laughs> good for them uh cubs added an outfielder as well they signed jock peterson um this was a little little fun fact i heard on the effectively wild podcast was that jock peterson's number one uh baseball reference has the stat called similarity score and it's really just comparing uh, players based on like how they get to their value what they're what they've done in their career that kind of thing um so peterson's number one comp was kyle schwarber and kyle schwarber's number two comp was jock peterson so <laughs> they the cubs non-tender jock peters or non-tender kyle schwarber he went to washington washington yes i didn't make yeah. that up he went to washington uh for i believe it was 10 11 12 million something in that range and now the cubs signed jock peterson um for seven million dollars so save a little money here sign a very similar player one that can probably play a little better defense it seems like they might ask him to play some center field um, but i like the addition a lot for them yeah and they got a bargain he's mm -hmm. a little cheaper than schwarber and uh you know he's a platoon player but it's the strong side of the platoon he's you're mm -hmm. gonna hit him against righties right um but he can hit and um it's a bit of a bargain according to our models so good for them and especially since they were crying poor and they had to you know trade darvish now suddenly they're not quite as poor as we thought so they're making some moves i guess yeah we that saw that with clear. cleveland too uh, yeah cleveland trading lindor <laughs> and i mean there's there's more that goes into that lindor trade than just oh we need to clear this salary for right now because it was that they weren't going to be able to afford to extend him yeah. um whereas darvish he's already on a multi-year contract and they kind of did need to lift that salary or <laughs> make a similar move with Bryant or Baez. Um, but Cleveland also did, we just mentioned they signed Rosario earlier. They signed um, Cesar Hernandez to a decent little deal, even though they already had what seemed like a full infield. Mm -hmm. So they're spending a little bit of that savings and it seems like the Cubs are too. Yeah. Um, you know, in, the Indians budget was already pretty low. So you could see the case like, okay, I can spend a little bit. Right. Yeah. Um, but the Cubs totally pivoted like, Oh, it's a fire sale. Actually. Mm -hmm. No. Uh, now that we've seen this clear, maybe they're not going to trade Bryant or Baez or Rizzo. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> we will talk about this later in the trade of the week, but it yeah. does seem a little less likely every day that Bryant goes anywhere. It seems like yeah. that time has passed. And especially if they are comfortable spending more money with where their budget is right now, then maybe it's more likely that they either wait to the deadline and see if they can get more for him or just hang on to him all the way and either try and work out a deal or take that draft pick. Yeah, right. Okay, now moving on to the infield. The Phillies, as we mentioned before, signed Didi Gregorius. It's a two-year, $28 million contract, which was right about in line with what I personally expected. Um, what, do the, what do the values say there? Sorry, I need to pull that up. Yes, <clears throat> go for it. Um, Gregorius, it, it's kind of what we talked about before, what I've mentioned, I think, three or four times this offseason where it seems like the Phillies' plan is just bring back the 2020 team and tweak the bullpen a little bit. So they brought back uh, they brought back JTL Ramuto. Now they're bringing back Didi Gregorius. They haven't really made any substantial additions on the offense. They just brought back those two guys, and then they've been rehauling their entire bullpen all offseason because it was just a disaster last season. A little bit of an overpay, so that's 
what he I think that's what he was making last year as well. But um, he's a little bit older, and it's for mm-hmm. two years. You know, we had fair value at twenty two point four, so it's a little bit of an overpay at twenty eight. But they maybe they just sort of settled there because that's what he was making before. It's Dombrowski, Dombrowski overpays to get his guy. He likes him, so okay. <laughs> and he was the last shortstop on the market. Yeah. Although I don't think they necessarily had a bidding war there with the Reds and the A's being the other two big teams that need shortstops and neither of those teams are spending a penny this off season. So I I don't get the sense that they were comfortable at 224 and then, Oh, the Reds chimed in and bumped it to 226. And now the Phillies got a response. I don't, that's not what happened. (laughs) No. And then they were, well, they were also kind of betting, bidding against themselves with real Nico, right? Because he didn't really have a market either. So, Mm -hmm. And you know, and from a larger standpoint, they basically just repl- they just re-signed the two guys they already had, right? So they haven't gotten themselves any better. They just mm-hmm. corrected the problem of not getting any worse. So, yeah. and they, you know, and they bid it against themselves to do that. So, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they didn't do anything stupid in that process. I mean, the worst, like, this isn't a one-year deal, so there is some downside here. But like, it's not that sizable of a commitment. It's not that long of a commitment here. Even if this deal does go south, it's not going to kill him. Yeah. And Real Mudo, you, you don't see a way. That, I mean, there's there's obviously a way that it could kill them, but it's JT Real Muto. There's there's some some room there for him to decline and still be a very valuable player for them. So it's not necessarily that, oh, you just spent all this money and you're the same team and you shouldn't have done that. Because, like, well... I think they should have re-signed Real Muto, and I think re-signing Gregorius, that's also fine. You would have liked to see a little bit more on top of it, but they didn't, they didn't, I don't think either of these signings on their own were a mistake, is what I'm trying to say. No, and I agree, and, and to your point about Real Muto, um, you know, there's a floor there, because even if he declines as a catcher defensively, you can still use him as a DH in 2022, presuming that's back, so... You know, because mm-hmm. he, he's good enough of a two-way player that if one way declines, the other way still might be okay. So, yeah, you're good. Yeah, definitely. Okay, other infielder. This one caught me a little bit by surprise. Uh, the Brewers signed Colton Wong. Mm-hmm. Uh, they pick him up on two years, $18 million, with a club option for the third season. And it looks like that one's going to be worth $8 million as well. Um, this one's going to have them shuffle around their infield a little bit. They had Keston here at second base, but he's never been a great defensive second baseman i believe he had tommy john um might have been when he was still in college um, but he's never he's never been a good second baseman even despite the arm trouble so it looks like they're going to be playing him at first base a lot they're going to add a sure glove at second base in colton wong to go with a sure glove at shortstop in orlando arcia still don't really have a third baseman there but at least at least the rest of their infield seems like it's pretty short up yeah i think that's a bargain um now wong is more of a glove first guy as you mentioned but mm-hmm. um but he's got an OPB, which kind of carries his bat a little bit more. And the knock on him is, you know, okay, he's you know, not going to hit homers or anything. So he can just shift against him and, you know, get most of the outs. But he can still get on base a lot. He can still take a walk. This is smart. He's a professional at bat. Amazing with the glove. But it's another sort of data point that the second base market has been depressed. It's been depressed for years. It's just a question of how much. I mean, we have to kind of give him a... You know, it's between a 30% and a 40% haircut between him, Cesar Hernandez, and a couple others that are just, you know, the second base market is just, that's where you hide a guy. And so a glove first guy, you know, is even, you know, is just as depressed as any. So, um, yeah, he should be worth a lot more than that. I mean, if you didn't, if you didn't have that sort of depressed market, 
you could see his value being well into the 30s, but uh, because it is, you know, we have his value at 27 against the 26, you know, assuming they pick up the third year at 20, 326, and it should be 327, given the market forces that we're in. So in that sense, it's in line. It's just a shame that, you know, second baseman are taking such a discount. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you along those lines, actually, looking back to one of the earlier deals we were talking about here. And we do we do also apply this positional adjustment for minor leaguers. But I'm wondering, do you think it maybe trickles down a little stronger to the minor leagues now? Um, and maybe that could explain some of the value gap with the Alex Cobb, Jemai Jones trade. It's possible, yeah. I mean, we have a, a little bit of a discount. We should probably examine that a little bit more closely and when we have some time and say, hmm, is it a little bit more of a discount? I mean, the thing that holds me back a little bit from just jumping right in and saying yes is because yeah. these guys are going to be making league minimum for three years, and so they're the cheaper alternative. It's mostly affecting the veterans because – that's they front offices determine that's not where you want to spend a great deal of money because there's so many mm-hmm. years that because you know the supply is always greater than the demand so but the young guys are part of the new supply and they're making league minimum so from a financial point of view you can't really discount that any further right so because they're the cheaper mm-hmm. alternative now they're less proven obviously but they're the cheaper alternative if you're if you're looking to, you know, get creative with budget. So I'm not totally convinced that that's a, you know, we have to give them that much of a haircut yet, but we'll, we'll look at it more closely. Yeah. I think there's, there's a disparity here between just how teams look at these types of guys where you look at a Colton Wong on the free agent market and he's quite possibly the best defensive second baseman in baseball. Mm-hmm. But, and, and I think if you stuck him at shortstop and said, all right, you're playing shortstop this season, I think he'd be an average shortstop potentially a little bit above but you're not going to do that at this point in his career you're not mm-hmm. going to ask a 30 year old to switch to shortstop for what would probably be the first time in five or six years mm-hmm. i don't know i don't really know his <laughs> where what positions exactly he played with the cardinals when he shifted off shortstop whether that was in the minor leagues or if he backed up a little bit in the big leagues i don't know that off the top of my head but with a guy like that once once they reach free agency they're pretty much set in stone where they are or they're shifting down the defensive spectrum, as we saw with Marcus Simeon in Toronto, where he was kind of a <clears throat> he was an okay shortstop. It's you can debate how much of his shortstop or of his uh, defensive metrics were helped by having Matt Chapman and Matt Olson on that infield. Uh, he was never an Andrelton Simmons type, and so he's moving down the defensive spectrum to second base, yeah. where he should be average or above. Um, so so guys are pretty much set in stone or moving down the spectrum. Whereas in the minor leagues, there's always some level of optimism and uncertainty, um, and usually it's it's if there is if there is ever a true second base only prospect, that's kind of a red flag in and of itself. That that says something about his yeah. flexibility, yeah. I think, and his athleticism. Arm strength. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Where if they've already <laughs> been limited to that point and not necessarily forced off the position. With a guy like Keston Hira, where you see he's only a couple years into this and he's already being shifted to first base. So maybe that's a distinction we make of maybe not a guy like Vidal Brujan with the Rays, where he's a middle infielder. He's not as good of a shortstop, and they're never going to ask him to play a shortstop when they have Willie Adamas and Wander Franco in the system. But, you know, the A's... Let's say they decided that's the direction they want to go at shortstop. That wouldn't surprise me too much. And so they trade for him as he is a shortstop, like treating him as if he is a shortstop. But 
if the A's were saying we want a shortstop solution, they're never going to trade for Keston Hira or no. Jemai Jones and say that's our guy. Right. So maybe maybe there's a distinction there that needs yeah. to be drawn between true second base types. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a great point. Yeah. Okay. Let's look. Well, let's look that further some, that. <laughs> yeah. Some thinking out loud between the two of us about some of the behind the scenes. Yeah. Okay, and then one last infielder. Like I said, I just wanted to mention really quick here. Um, we talked about the signing on the last one, but the dollars were not official yet. Now they are. This is Tommy Listella to the Giants. He'll earn three years, $18.75 million, and it'll be very backloaded. So he only gets $2 million in 2021, 5.25 in 2022, and 11.5 in 2023. And a huge part of that is that they have a lot of money coming off. The Giants have a lot of money coming off the books the next couple of years. Yeah. Between between Brandon Belt, Brandon Crawford, Evan Longoria, they're clearing a ton of money. And so $2 million price tag, obviously for the luxury tax, it's just 6.25 each year. But as far as actual salary, actual payroll goes, it's just going to be $2 million for this year. And then he'll be, played, he'll be paid. He'll definitely be overpaid in the third year of that deal. So it might be a little bit hard to move him if that's what they decide to do. Um, but they also should have less financial commitments at that point anyway, so more flexibility to pay down his contract if they have to. Yeah, and you know this one's right in line. I think. I mean, most people in in Farhan acknowledged that to win the bid, they had to give a third year. But you know, most of the projections were he was going to get somewhere between two years and twelve million, two years and fourteen million, somewhere in there, and ended up you know around a between a six and seven million AAV. So he ended up getting very close to that, just with a third year to win the bid. Uh, but one other point here, he is a bat first second baseman slash first baseman. And that's slightly different calculation here because we said earlier, this is a place where you hide a bat, you know, and with, with all the shifting going on. But the the offensive, uh, more offensive oriented second baseman still get paid a little bit more than the defensive glove first guys. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not totally clear on why that is but it is a thing and we've clearly noticed that so he doesn't get as much of a haircut but for that reason because you can count on his bat he's got an excellent contact bat hardly ever strikes out you know so that's a guy you can put in your lineup confidently quite a bit so that's what he's there for i think the argument there is you get a i think tommy Lestella and colton wong here are great ones to talk about back to back here because they are polar opposites kind <clears> of <throat> yeah um, and Listella, especially with the idea of the DH coming soon to the National League, you say, okay, if he gets worse as he ages at the thing he's already bad at, yeah, right. defense, exactly. then that's okay. We have a spot for him either on the bench, he can pinch hit, or at first base, or as a DH. Whereas if Colton Wong gets worse at the thing that he's bad at, he goes from like a 90 wrc plus bat to being like a 75 yeah then it becomes really difficult to justify playing him still when there's a hundred slick fielding middle infielders out on the waiver wire who can also (laughs) hit that poorly for free yeah or you know if he's a glove first guy and he loses a step you know then 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 you got what do you got then his value just crashes down whereas lastella has a little bit of room with his bat to lose a little bit and still be a productive hitter more of a floor exactly yeah. Okay, now a couple starting pitching deals. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, the Cardinals re-signed Adam Wainwright. Uh, so he gets a one-year deal worth about $8 million. I don't know if we have a finalized dollar value on that yet, but $8 million is what was reported. Uh, full no-trade clause, award bonuses. This is what everyone expected, right? Like both Molina, who hasn't officially signed yet, but is reported to do so. 
uh, both Molina and Wainwright, I don't think anybody ever pictured them going to a different team. Yeah. And it was just kind of a waiting game of how maybe the Cardinals prioritizing something like this Arenado deal and some other moves and just saying, we'll talk to you guys once we know what kind of money we have left. Um, I think $8 million's pretty good for him. I'd, I'd, I, I'll admit to not looking. I usually don't look at the free agent trade values until we record these podcasts because I kind of want to... I kind of want to be surprised by them. I kind of want to give my own personal take before yeah. I find out what the values are. But I would, if I had to guess, I'd say this was a bit of an overpay. It is. Yeah, well, I'm, I, yeah. I'm, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, um, but yeah, he was only I making, he's making less than that last year. Now he had a bit of a bounce mm-hmm. back year, but offsetting that is the fact that he's going to be 39. So, mm-hmm. like I was saying with Nelson Cruiser, like we don't really like the model starts to taper off in the late 30s. Like, okay, <laughs> you know, there's another guy who's kind of, you know, okay, what do you do with that in terms of the aging curve and injury curve? Uh, but he had a good year last year, and so he's getting rewarded for it. Now, uh, kudos to the Cardinals because they're like, how many teams are there these days that actually keep their favorite players? And, you know, we'll still hang, you know, Molina's a Cardinal for life. Wayne Wright's a Cardinal for life. Yes. They overpaid for Matt Carpenter, but he's another one of those guys, those Cardinal guys. Mm-hmm. So they clearly place a value on that. And, you know, there's something to be said for that. So I give him credit for that. Yeah. You can, you can take the issues that you have. And I've certainly had some over the years with, uh, some of the uh, self-righteousness and kind of pompousness <laughs> that can sometimes be associated with St. Louis Cardinals fans. Mm-hmm. But I will agree, their organization does what's right for the fans a lot of the time, even if it isn't necessarily 100% the best move on the field. Like, obviously, if they could have upgraded from Yadier Molina at age 52 or however old he is to JT Realmuto, that would have been a huge boost for them. Um, but... Th- that risks kind of aggra- aggravating the fan base a little bit, and they'd rather let these two kind of <clears throat> go off into the sunset together. Again, on, on Effectively Wild, they did a, a portion where they talked about this, and uh, Molina and Wainwright are among, I think, the top five um, battery mates in terms of, uh, it was either starts together or innings or something along those lines, but they've, they've just been throwing, Wainwright's been throwing to Molina forever, and it's among the top five in baseball history of battery mates. And I think the number one in active battery mates by a long shot. I believe the runner up was like Sal Perez and Danny Duffy. <laughs> <laughs> so these guys have been just pillars of St. Louis baseball for well over a decade now. And it's nice to see them uh, obviously unofficially at this point with Yadier Molina, but by all accounts, it's nice to see them stick together. Great. All right. All right, now in Tampa Bay, the prodigal son returns. Chris Archer is back on the race, baby. It's a one-year, $6.5 million contract. Um, Jeez, talk about having your cake and eating it, too. It's just fleecing the pirates in that deal and then saying, like, hey, you know how he sucked for you guys to the point where you declined what looked like a really team-friendly team option? Yeah, we're going to take him back now. <laughs> and we're going to fix him probably because that's what the Rays freaking do. They're going to turn him back into old Chris Archer and poor Pirates. <laughs> yeah, I told my um, 10-year-old son about this last night who's also a baseball fan and you know doesn't know enough about the business. But I told him, look, here's how smart the Rays are. They traded Chris Archer for three guys, totally fleeced them, and then they get Chris Archer back. So he's like, okay, so the Pirates got nothing. The Pirates got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. The Pirates got some, like, 
league average or slightly <clears throat> below innings from him, and then an injured season and <laughs> like zero playoff appearances during that span, <laughs> and a whole lot of disappointment. Yeah. Yeah, that's obviously the storyline here. But, um, you know, hidden behind that is the fact that Archer has been injured and we don't know what he's going to be like when he's when he's back. But it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's an upside gamble. You know, he could be done or you could see, you know, a resurgence. So they're betting on the upside and it doesn't cost him all that much. So why not? He probably Mm -hmm. liked it there. So let's give it a shot. I've had some troubles with the Rays this offseason. We discussed at length in an earlier episode the Blake Snell trade and some of the motivations behind that um, and I, I don't think there's any problem with them doing an obvious sell high there for Blake Snell where they've kind of moved on past the point of valuing him like a six inning starter seven mm-hmm. inning starter even mm-hmm. so at that point trade him to a team that does and reap the benefits I don't have a problem with that but coming off the season they just have it's hard to look at their roster and not just say wow they got worse I mean, they're replacing uh, Snell and Morton, who were two very valuable starting pitchers for them. They're replacing them with Michael Walker and Chris Archer. Yeah. And so I'll never doubt the Rays. Yeah. And I know that they have the deepest farm system in the history of baseball, it seems like. And they're going to have plenty of reinforcements all season, both on the pitching side and on the offensive side. Wander Franco's going to debut at some point, and he could just dynamically shift that entire club's outlook. Um, so I'm not going to doubt them. But just looking at the major league clubs on the surface, it's did they get passed by Toronto this offseason? It feels like they did. Yeah, they're playing the long game. So it may be one step back this year. And um, our um, our Rays fans on the site will be the first to point out they've got, and you mentioned as well, they've got a, a bunch of guys coming, right, mm-hmm. uh, that they need to make room for. And they're the, the kind of team that wants to kind of play their guys, right? So mm-hmm. they've got to keep the line moving, right? So they cleared their way for – Shane McClanahan and Shane, Shane Baz and, you know, who knows if Honeywell comes back, but there's some arms coming that they need to start to pitch. So um, they got to make room for them. And the hope is that, yeah, maybe this year will be an adjustment year, but maybe next year we're back to World Series strength again. So that's, yeah. that's their play. Yeah, I could very easily see that. And then you, if you are just bringing back this Archer and Waka and, instead of Snell and Morton, to your point there about making room for those guys, if, if, a McClanahan is knocking on the door and you have two of your rotation spots taken up by Charlie Morton and Blake Snell. You're not, you're not making, even if those guys are horrible, even if those guys are each thrown to a nine ERA at that point in the season, you can't cut either of them to make room for McClanahan. Mm-hmm. But if we get a month or two into the year here and Archer or Waka is just a mess. Yeah. Then sure. Why not cut bait? It was a one year deal. Right. Only a couple million dollars that were thrown down the drain. We've already lost that money. Essentially. It's already been spent. Let's just <clears throat> cut them, not have to lose a more talented player so we can make room for one of these guys on the roster. Exactly. Okay. Twins. Now we're moving into the bullpen here. Twin sign, Alex Colomay. Uh, they pick him up on a $5 million uh, salary for 2021 with a team option. So the total guarantee there is 6.25 million. Um, it's a five and a half million dollar team option for the second year with a 1.25 million buyout. I think this was probably lower than the average fan expected Colome to get, but that's because the average fan doesn't care that Colome didn't strike anyone out at all last year. <laughs> and strikeouts are like the number one predictor for a reliever of future success. Mm-hmm. And so I personally wouldn't have touched Colome with a 10 foot pole. Um, 
I guess at this at this dollar value, he makes some sense for the Twins, given, as I mentioned before, the bullpen talent that they lost this offseason in uh, Matt Whistler, Sergio Romo, Tyler Clippard. They lost the bulk of their bullpen to free agency. Mm-hmm. And so now they add at least a serviceable arm. I don't think they expect him to be the guy he was in 2020, and they'll, according to reports, they'll be pairing him in the closers role with Taylor Rogers, who also struggled a bit in 2020. Um, kind of letting them both either ride the hot hand, play the matchups, whatever they choose to do there. Um, but I, I don't hate it for them in this context. I would have hated it for a lot of teams if they paid him the money that fans were expecting him to get and said, this is our closer through and through for the next two or three years. I would have hated that. But it seems like teams have moved on past that point of the proven closer. And they're just looking for what can you do for me next year? And they were a lot less certain of what Cola may could do for them next year. Yeah. At this price, it's fine. Our model likes it actually right at this price. And we figure mm-hmm. in the, the second year, they would pick up the option uh, as with the twin side of it as well. So it's exactly even 10.5 for two years to 10.5 to two years and field value and salary. So it's a zero surplus. So in other words, it's right on the money. Um, but, you know, he's making about half of what he was making last year, I think, which was the end of his uh, his ARB three year. Um, I think it was about around ten million or so. Anyway, that but, sounds right. Yeah, but he was not worth that. To your point, so this is the right price point for him. He is one of these guys that, yes, you don't know how he does it, but he does it. You know, kind of gets the job mm-hmm. done. So. But, you know, the predictors say, yes, he's not like a super duper closer. So at this price point, though, he'll he'll be serviceable. Yeah, I'll add on there that he was he was worth that salary as far as the actual performance on the field and the results. And I think if you could say he's going to do that again the next two years, then you have teams going, yeah, well, of course, I'll give him 10 million a year. Um was not worth that in terms of projections or where we yeah. think his numbers would have ended up in, in a normal season where he would have had 60, 70, 80 innings for some of that luck to regress. Yeah, right. Next reliever, Joaquin Soria to the D-backs, one year, $3.5 million. I think this is a really solid little pickup for them. Soria's n- never really been bad <laughs> throughout his whole career, really. I mean, he took a minor setback in 2020, had... Um, some slight home run issues, some slight walk issues the last couple years. But he's still throwing just as hard as ever. He's still missing bats. He's still an effective middle reliever, if not setup man. Yeah, he's 37. Um, he knows how to pitch. If you look at his win probability at it, it's positive every single year. Mm-hmm. Like, you you know, um, for the most part, he, you know, he, you can bring him into a leverage situation. He's a seventh seventh-ish, eight-ish. He's not a closer. He's a seventh-inning guy, eight-inning guy who will get you outs, basically, very reliably. Now, he is 37, so he's slowing down a bit, and so you don't know if he's going to completely fall off a cliff, which is why he's not going to make as much as he did last year. He's making four and a half. I think he was making six or no, seven or eight last year. Um, but he pitched well for the A's last year. He got out of some jams. You know, it was, it was impressive to watch him because he was very smart. He knew exactly how to fool the hitter. You know, because he's an old vet kg veteran right to my point about wpa he knows how he knows how to pitch and get out so um i'm curious though the diamondbacks seem like they're not going to contend this year given the division they're in so what do they need like a high leverage reliever for shouldn't they just be you know um hibernating a little bit you know but i guess (laughs) for for three and a half million dollars you need him so you can trade him to the dodgers in july all right fair enough there is a little bit of surplus there (laughs) so i'll give you that um yeah 
to your point there, kind of wily veteran type. He's not necessarily a Sergio Romo, Yusmero Petit, where they're operating below 90, and if, if the location gones, goes, they're screwed. Um, he's got a little bit of velo left in the tank there, but a lot of his, most of his effectiveness does come off of his slider, his curveball. Um, he's got some really good off-speed stuff, so. Yeah. I like the addition at the price. I will agree that it doesn't, the fit itself isn't necessarily the most logical, but why not? <laughs> Every team needs pitching. And, you know, he's basically the replacement for Archie Bradley, uh, mm-hmm. unless I'm missing something, at a slightly cheaper price. So yeah. they save a couple bucks. Yeah. Okay, and then to the Reds, Sean Doolittle signs for a one-year, $1.5 million contract. Love this for them just for the fact that Doolittle's a great guy. He's a lot of fun in the clubhouse and for fans. Struggled big time in 2020. His velo dropped, had some injuries, only threw seven and two-thirds innings. Uh, He's always had injury concerns his whole career, really. But, I mean, at at this dollar value and with the way the Reds are operating, with kind of the state of their bullpen, again, there's not really, there's no room for this to go wrong. Yeah, it's uh, it's a buy low play. You know, 1.5 million for a guy who has some upside left. He's 34, but again, you see relievers pitch well into their 30s, as we just saw with Soria. So, you know, it's not the end of the world, but you know, there's a chance he may be done. In which case, okay, it's 1.5. It's not going to kill you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a there's a just as better than well, maybe not. Let's say it's a 50-50 chance that he can bounce back as well. <clears throat> so, you know, it's a fair it's a fair price. And um, and the Reds, another team that um, just to my earlier point, I mean, they <clears throat> um, they traded Iglesias, Rizal Iglesias, who was making a lot of money and they get Doolittle for one point five. So they save some money. They and they also the they also non tendered Archie Bradley. Yeah, there's another one. So yeah. so he's the replacement with a little bit of an upside gamble there at, uh, at a very low price. Mm-hmm. So, OK, yeah. All right, I think that's all the free agents, free agent moves and trades and everything. I probably missed something. If I did, go feel free to yell at me about it on some platform. <laughs> but yeah. I, I think that's that's all of them. Yeah. Moving yeah. on to the trade of the week. Uh, it's from user Nodin, Nodin. We get proposals from him a lot of the time, from them a lot of the time, and I never know how to pronounce their name. <laughs> uh, so... This, this is what we alluded to earlier, that we would be discussing Bryant a little bit more in depth. This trade would send Bryant to the Braves. Uh, we have Bryant at $2.8 million in trade value. Uh, they, the Braves would also get $5 million cash. In exchange, they would send back right-handed pitcher Kyle Wright at $7.2 million in trade value. So basically, the Cubs are offloading Bryant and majority of his salary. Um, they would pay $5 million of it. The Braves would cover the other fourteen and a half. In exchange, they get... An interesting upside play in Kyle Wright, where huge pedigree hasn't really panned out to any to anything at the big league level yet, uh, but he's still only 25, and maybe that's a building block for the Cubs going forward. Yeah, and the Cubs need pitching, uh, and they know it. Mm-hmm. They traded Darvish, and they got some holes there. Like it's hard to sort of stitch together the rotation at this point. Um, so they need, you know, and and the the Braves have an abundance of young pitchers, and so it, it makes sense from that point of view. And obviously the Braves could use you know bryant at third base and you know they're the type of team as we discussed earlier that likes to make these types of one-year deals essentially like a free agent one-year deal for bryant um so you're in you're, you're trading from abundance so from the braves point of view it makes a lot of sense from the cubs point of view they save some money they get him off of, you know he's been a bit of a headache for them i think the relationship is soured and they get a young pitcher 
Um, interesting when, as we're recording this, we've got uh, the the ratio is exactly 50-50 here. 39 up, 39 down in terms of votes. So that's probably good. You know, that probably means it's a fair trade. Yeah. I personally have a hard time. I see this as fair value. Don't get me wrong. I have a hard time seeing the Cubs pull the trigger, though, unless they are especially motivated to get out from the money. And if they are, then why the heck did you just sign Jock Peterson? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right. If there is motivation to get out from that 14 and a half million, then okay, I see it. I see there's plenty of upside there for Wright, even if he has really struggled at the big league level. Um, That's the kind of, that's almost the best you can do for Chris Bryant while still getting most of the money off your hands. Exactly. but otherwise, if there isn't necessarily an immediate need to clear that salary, I think it's looking, like I said earlier, it's looking more and more likely like they just go into the season and either see if they can get a better return at the trade deadline or they just take the draft pick, which they could get a similar profile to Kyle Wright. Not not necessarily it, yeah. the same level of trade value, depending <clears throat> on when that pick is, um, but they could get a similar upside play that they can try to develop themselves rather than trying to fix a broken 25 year old yeah more likely they'll get a lower level prospect excuse me uh draft pick you know with prospect value that's closer to that Mm 2.8 um so you know the only thing that is if they keep him all year they've spent the money on him and but then again maybe they in a week in el central can still contend with him so you know it's kind of a wash so it sounds like um, my guess is that that's probably what they're going to do is they're going to keep him, you know, obviously if you trade him at the deadline, his value will be even lower and you don't get the draft pick if you're the acquiring team. So they lose some value there as well. So uh, it, it could go either way, but this is a fair deal. So this is, I think, why it's um, it's, it's about even in, our, in terms of our user base. Yeah, to that point about the weak NL Central, um, I think I saw a lot of people reacting to the Nolan Arenado trade with, okay, the Cardinals are now the favorites in the NL Central. And maybe, yeah, maybe gut reaction they are. And if you believe in a full bounce back from Arenado, yeah, they should be. But according to the projections, it's still the Brewers by a hair, and it's still these four teams packed pretty tightly together. You know, Saris of the Athletic had a great piece about it. Um But it's still these top four teams that are all bunched pretty closely together, well within the standard deviation (laughs) of Mm -hmm. projections to we're just saying it's a coin flip between these four teams. And so give it a shot, I guess. And if you're successful, you make the playoffs, you make get some of that playoff money. I mean, (laughs) I don't know. It, it, It would look real awful if the Cubs did decide to make a trade like this and then regardless of the production that White gives them on the or Wright gives them on the field in 2021 if Bryant went back to being Bryant with the Braves and then the Cubs missed the playoffs by a game or two that would look awful and at that yeah point, at that point I think they would they would very much regret that and say we should have just hung on to him and seen what happened it's worth the however many millions of dollars we would have saved yeah, there's one other consideration, though. If when you look at the National League as a whole, you've got a juggernaut in L.A., you've got this budding juggernaut in San Diego, and oh my gosh, I mean, those are two powerhouse teams. And then you've got the NL East, which is beefing up, and the Mets, we'll see what they do with Bauer if they get him. But, you know, they're beefing up. You know, that's a very competitive – the Braves are looking good as well, even without this. So, you know, it's, it's like you could say if you're the Cubs, I don't even know – I you know, even if you make it, 
you know, if you're going to go up against those teams in the playoffs, whether you have a chance. So my point is, I'm not sure how much you want to invest in that outcome. Now, granted, in the past, there have been wildcard teams that have won the World Series. So maybe that's enough. They just want to be in it, in the dance and see what happens from there. Okay, fine. I get it. Uh, but there's a lot of uncertainty, is my point, even just to make it to the playoffs with this weird NL Central. And then what happens when you get there? It seems like all those clubs are going to be overmatched once they when they hit those juggernauts. So, you know, that that ultimately will play back to how much are you investing in your team and what is your strategy? Is it, do you want to just blow it up or do you want to try and sneak through? So I don't know. We'll see what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's our trade of the week. Again, it's from user Noden. And as always, if you would like to be featured, just submit a trade to the site. If everyone likes it well enough, we will talk about it. So... We've been moving pretty well through this time-wise, and I did realize that I missed a trade earlier, and it was a trade I wrote about. <laughs> so a seamless little transition. Let's talk mm-hmm. about this article uh, that I wrote for a few minutes here. Yep. Um, a bit of a change of pace here. Usually it's <laughs> it's you writing the article and yep. me asking you about it. Um, this time, I decided to take the reins and write about Steven Matz. So... Steven Matz, left-handed pitcher, was traded from the Mets to the Blue Jays. We had Matz at 0.5 million in trade value. He was he was a non-tender candidate, um, and in exchange, the Mets only they got back two million in value total, but it was just a couple spare parts, kind of. Um, yeah. A few pitchers: Yenzi Diaz, Sean Reed Foley, and Josh Winkowski. Um, we had Diaz at 0.6 million, Reed Foley at 1.3, and Winkowski at 0.1. Basically, the Mets get some optionable uh, rotation depth. And the Blue Jays get kind of a back-end type, maybe, in Steven Matz. And so, on the surface here, I mean, it's a it's a fair value trade. 0.5 million for 2 million. It's within our range, accepted by the model and everything. Yeah. Um, but I, my first reaction to this trade was that it was weird. It was really weird to me, given the type of pitching Blue J- the Blue Jays um, already had, especially mm-hmm. after signing Robbie Ray earlier in the offseason. Mm-hmm. So just to go through kind of their projected rotation at this point, Hyunjin Ryu's at the top, and he was fantastic last season. There's no reason not to believe in him going forward. Um, I guess there could be concerns about injury, age, all that good stuff, but he's been very good every time he's been on a mound. He's going to be productive. Then behind him, you got Nate Pearson, who's still one of the top 10 prospects in all of baseball, throws real hard. Um, It's going to be kind of... Uh, an interesting year for him. It'll be his first real full season. So a lot of uncertainty there, but tons of upside. And then after that, it's a bunch of these really back-end types that were all pretty awful in 2020 Yeah. Um, that are all going to be fighting for these last three or four spots, depending on what type of rotation they end up going with. And so that's Robbie Ray, Tanner Rourke, Ross Stripling, Steven Matz, Tyler Chatwood. And three of those guys they went out of their way to bring in this offseason in Ray, Chatwood, and Matts. And the fourth one, Ross Stripling, they went out of their way to acquire last trade deadline, as they did with Robbie Ray. Uh, they, they traded for Ray and then re-signed him this offseason. So I thought that was kind of strange. So I took a closer look here, and I think after after the research that I put in for this article, I think I'm feeling a lot better about both the Blue Jays as a team and their pitching plans so the first point here is that the blue jays have an insane amount of depth behind all of those veterans 
So there are 21 pitchers on their 40-man roster, at least at the time that I wrote this. Mm-hmm. I haven't necessarily been tracking them to see if they've made any other 40-man moves. I don't think they have. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time of this article, there are 21 pitchers on their 40-man roster, and 15 of them have started at least a handful of games, at least five games combined between the majors and minors, 2019-2020. So that was kind of my cutoff as, can this person be considered a starter, potentially expected to start games in 2021? So that's 15 pitchers on their 40-man roster. On top of them, they got Shun Yamaguchi, who they signed from uh, from Japan, who started four games for the Yomiuri, Yomiuri Giants in 2019 and then moved to the bullpen. So he could be kind of an emergency starter there. And there were talks of him making the rotation in 2020 out of spring training, but he ended up being put in the bullpen instead. And then Jordan Romano, who's developed into a pretty solid back-end arm for them, uh, he started games in the minor leagues in 2018. And so did Elvis Luciano, who in 2018 was with the Royals in the lower minors. He started games there. Uh, the Blue Jays picked him up as a very young Rule 5 pick and used him in the bullpen in 2019, and then he was hurt. And I believe he did not make an appearance for the Major League team in 2020. I might be wrong on that. But the point is, those are two more guys that not necessarily likely to start games, but, but it's possible. And so that add that up, that's 18 of the 21 pitchers, they have three pure relievers, and that's Kirby Yates, who they signed, Rafael Dolis, and Ty Tice. And a lot of those starting pitcher depth type arms, almost all of them have options. So they got just tons of depth here, and that could be a huge factor, I believe, in the 2021 season. Mm -hmm. Um, It's what we've talked about before, where we're jumping from 60 games to 162, and nobody really knows how it's going to go. So there's the argument that, oh, pitchers are going to perform better because their arms are going to be so much better rested since they only threw 60 innings last year instead of their usual 150, 180, whatever. And there's the counter argument of, yeah, but that means that their arm hasn't been as built up and it's going to be such a huge jump to go from 60 back to 150, 180, 200 that guys' arms are just going to fall off left and right. And then when you factor in some of the uncertainty here that still kind of exists, um, it, it's become a little bit more set in stone since, but the, the the level of uncertainty about the length of spring training, when it's going to start, whether there could be another weird layoff, um, all of that. And there's, there's reason to believe that we're going to need a lot of pitching depth for 2021, more so than usual. And the Blue Jays have that. Granted, they're not all superstars, but they have plenty of pitching depth. And you compare them to a team like the Yankees, who they're putting a lot of faith in Corey Kluber, Jamison Tyone, Luis Severino, and Domingo Herman, And those four guys combined for one major league inning in 2020. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was Kluber before he got hurt for his second year in a row. And they're the biggest competition, since we, we kind of mentioned earlier how the Rays are taking a step back. The Yankees are the biggest thing between the Blue Jays and the NL East title. And so we can already give a huge edge to the... Maybe if they don't have the same level of talent because they don't have a Garrett Cole or a Jordan Montgomery or the upside of the Tyone, Kluber, Severino types, but they already have a significant depth advantage over the Yankees. And then you go in and look at some of these veteran guys, the five that I listed before, Ray, Roark, Stripling, Mats, and Chatwood. And I won't go too in-depth into them. I'll let you guys, <laughs> I've been talking for a while. I'll let you guys re- read the article on this one. Um, but if you look into their profiles, examine them a little bit closer, they each have reason to believe in a bounce back for them. Um, First of all, all five of them 
were solid in 2019. Not necessarily superstars, but they were all like, you know, reliable mid to back end arms, two win pitchers. Um, the one exception there was Tyler Chatwood, who was used as a swingman role. He had his best year with the Cubs, a 3.76 ERA, um, but only 76 innings. So maybe he settles back into that kind of a role with the Blue Jays. Um, but Stripling was always a very, very reliable swingman type arm for the Dodgers. Every time he had to fill in with starts, they were great. And then Matt's Rourke and Ray, Matt's and Rourke specifically were solid back end types, and Ray always showed those flashes of being a little bit more. And so they each have additional reasons beyond that that they could bounce back. I'll just go into Matt's real quick since that's really the relevant one to the trade itself. But Steven Matt's had a bit of a weird situation with his fastball last year. Um, he threw it very hard. He threw it a career high 94.5 miles an hour. And his initial peripherals looked pretty good, his strikeouts and walks. But he gave up 14 home runs in 31 innings, which is not good. <laughs> it's really, really mm-hmm. bad. And all of it, it wasn't just a unusually high home run per fly ball rate. It was it, he was just getting crushed. Like his exit velocity was horrible. Um, and so it turns out he has kind of inverted movement on his two seam and four seam fastballs. <clears throat> and because of that, he had switched from his four seam, which moves like a two seam, to his two seamer, which moves lo- more like a four seam. And since it moved more like a four seam, he stopped throwing his slider as often because the pitch pairs better with his other fastball. So in total, you get a guy who ditched one of his best pitches and the fastball that he switched to because in, in order to ditch that other pitch got hammered. Mm. So it seems, I'm no pitching expert, <laughs> but it seems like an easy, quick fix to me of just go back to the other fastball bring back your slider, your changeup and your curveball are both pretty solid. And then there was some natural regression there uh, between his BABIP, his home run per fly ball, and his strand rate. And all of that combined leads me to believe you could be a back-end guy, a reliable mm-hmm. back-end guy pretty easily next season instead of the guy who just got absolutely mm-hmm. tanked. So that's my well, spiel <laughs> on that article. I'll yeah, no, I think you, I, it's very impressive, and you went in depth with them. If they make all these changes, if you if you are right that that, that that's what they're seeing, then you know it's a good upside play, right? You know they're betting on, you know, mm-hmm. the, basically all of these modifications in order to get the most out of these guys. Um, and you know, I'm not sure. I mean, are the Blue Jays known for doing this? I mean, I can see like the Indians with their pitching development and, you know, there's been a few others who have like, you know, mastered the spin rate and all this, but like, uh, you know, I, yes, the Blue Jays have gotten a lot of out of Ryu and like, I, I, I'm just, I wait and see if they can actually turn around these guys. It'll be interesting if they do. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an argument there that they're not necessarily good at this. You look at a guy like Aaron Sanchez, where there's obviously injuries involved there, but he never really reached his, his ceiling and Marcus Stroman, he had some good times and some bad times. Um, but I think one of the biggest things in their favor here is that a lot of these guys that I mentioned here, either they've already kind of made the change and that's Robbie Ray, where he had a big mechanical adjustment that he made going into 2020 because he wanted to throw more strikes completely backfired. He walked a batter per nine, <laughs> a batter per inning uh, with the diamondbacks lost it completely. Uh, but Ben Clemens did a good analysis. Of course he did. <laughs> ben Clemens again. He did a good breakdown there, looking at the video there. And it looks like Ray is back to his, um, like once he got traded to Toronto, he went back to his old mechanics 
and the results weren't perfect, but they were much better in Toronto. So that's a reason to believe in him. He's kind of already made the change. And then both both Stripling and Mats and then Chatwood to an extent, they're pitch mix guys where they really just changed something odd about their pitch mix in 2020, uh, Mats and Stripling specifically, and stopped throwing some of their better pitchers in exchange for some of their worst pitches. And that seems like the kind of thing that's that could be an easy fix even for a team that's not as adept. And even if the team itself isn't as adept, you got Danny Jansen, who is a pretty solid defensive catcher, and maybe that's something that he can recognize. Yeah. So I'm not suggesting that all five of these guys are going to bounce back and they're all going to be two-win pitchers in 2021. That would be absurd. And obviously that's not what the Blue Jays are expecting either. I'm just saying that they only really need a couple of these guys, and if a couple of them do bounce back to being pretty serviceable arms, and the other two are just like, eh, maybe league average, maybe slightly below, but they'll eat some innings, that could still have some value given the structure of the 2021 mm-hmm. season. Okay. We we do have one small piece of late-breaking news mm-hmm. here that, according to Bob Nightingale, uh, the Cardinals have traded Dexter Fowler's contract, at least part of it, <laughs> to the Angels. Um, so Dexter Fowler, we talked about earlier in this episode, he's underwater in the last year of his deal. Um, he's making $14 million this season. And according to Nightingale, Cardinals will pay the bulk of that contract and the Angels will send a player to be named later or cash. So it is just kind of a pure, let's just get this yeah, guy Yeah, it's a roster, roster move. Yeah. <clears throat> maybe save a little bit of money. Um, but the Angels wanted some outfield depth, which makes sense. Justin Upton is always hurt and sometimes bad, and Jordan Adele was pretty bad in his Major League debut. So might as well add a warm body out there at least. Fowler has a little bit of on-field value. Yeah, so. <laughs> zero, maybe one. And he's 35, <laughs> lots of you know decline there and some injury risk there as well. Um, I will point out that according to Cotts, um, his initial sort of um, signing bonus has been distributed um, two million per year through 2021, which is why we've tacked on the extra two million, which is why you see the salary at 16.5 uh, as opposed to 14.5, mm-hmm. uh, because we're assuming that that's still yet to be paid. I don't know if that's part of the, the deal going over, uh, you know. But the essence of the trade is let's just get this guy off the rot- roster. We'll pay most of his salary, and you can give us a minor prospect pick if you want. Yeah, <laughs> so that's about yeah, it. From the Cardinals, <laughs> from the Cardinals, it was we're going to pay this guy's contract anyway, unless we dump a prospect here, and we don't really want to do yeah. that. And then from the Angels, it's hey, if this guy's going to be free, <laughs> then yeah, why not take him, give him a shot? If he flops, then we just cut him loose, and yeah. we didn't really lose anything here. Yeah. So. We'll have more on that if if more develops in the time after we hop off here. We'll have more on that next episode, or I'll I might I might butt in here, add in an extra little recording here to break down whatever else happens here. But from the way it looks right now, that's yep. how it is. Okay, we got to a lot this episode, and we just hit the hour thirty mark, which is kind of what we shoot for a little bit. Um, yeah. So I think this was a fun yeah, one. lot to cover. So thanks. By the, by the time we're talking to y'all again, we'll be another week closer to spring training. Likely by then, Trevor Bauer will have signed, and hopefully we'll have some other trades and shenanigans to talk about. Um, but that'll do it for this week. So thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. We'll be back next week to break down more offseason news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the offseason. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.